Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Robin Buller, your host. Today, I am very excited to have Lori Jeminer Beeler as our guest. She's an associate professor of history at Framingham State University and joins us today to discuss her book, Cities of Refuge German Jews in London and New York, 1935 to 1945. Lori, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me, Robin. So before we get into the book, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm currently working as an associate professor of history at Framingham State, like you said, which is just outside of Boston. I teach a range of courses in modern European and U.S. history, and I also supervise the secondary history education program as well. Uh, I've been at Framingham since 2012. And before that, I taught for five years in the history department at the University of Rhode Island in Kingston. Oh, I have a friend at the University of Rhode Island. Ah, <laughs> uh, I bet I know <laughs> So with that said, uh, how did you come to write about German Jewish refugees? What brought you What brought you to this topic? Sure. It's, it's kind of a long story, but I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. Um, I grew up in a town outside of New Haven, Connecticut, and I spent my weekends driving into New York City, well, not myself, but my parents driving into New York (laughs) City to see my grandparents who were German Jewish refugees. Uh, They lived in Washington Heights and we'd go in every couple of weekends. Um, And it just seemed pretty normal to me to go to a neighborhood where everyone spoke German and ate cafe kuchen and just had really... um, authentic experience without even realizing it. Um, uh, When I graduated uh, high school, I did my undergraduate degree in history at Binghamton University, which used to be known as SUNY Binghamton. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated, I moved to the UK and began studying history, secondary education at the University of Bristol uh, with my intention, the intention of becoming a history teacher. So, After I completed that, um, I ended up having to return back to the States because of visa, uh, my visa ran out. Um, And I eventually uh, landed a job as a middle school social studies teacher. And I did that for five years. Um, And while I love teaching world history to 12 and 13 year olds, um, I did develop a slight obsession with German Jewish history uh, about my third year in. Um, And so, well, I was living in New Haven while I was teaching, and I would attend different talks that just you know, piqued my interest, usually at Yale University. Um, and I ended up going to a book signing by the late Ruth Gay, uh, wife of Peter Gay, for her book called The Jews of Germany, A Historical Portrait. Um, and the, the book was kind of a revelation to me. I, I grew up Jewish, visiting Washington Heights. Uh, I belonged to BBYO. I went to a Jewish sleepaway camp, but I always felt a little bit of an like an outsider. I didn't know any Yiddish. I didn't have a bubby. I had an omi. And all I really knew about 
Germany and Jewish life there was that my grandparents escaped and much of their extended family did not. So when I listened to Ruth Gay talk about her book and share it, and after I purchased a copy and had her sign it, which I still have, um, I was I was fascinated with this history that I really knew nothing about, um, even though it was my history. Um, so at the talk, um, at the book signing, I spoke with Ruth Gay afterwards and said that I was a local teacher, but I was interested in this history. And she invited me um, to spend an afternoon at her house with her and her husband. And I have to say, it was the graciousness and generosity of various historians, including Peter and Ruth Gay, uh, that led me to where I am. People have been so generous and um, just courteous from the very beginning. And that really has supported me in this um, endeavor to write this book. So it's a very Um, personal topic and interesting intellectual endeavor at the same time. Exactly. It started off a personal interest, but then just the exchanges I've had with so many different people over time through my doctorate, before my doctorate, since then, um, really, really rejuvenating. Um, So the gays uh, recommended that I meet with Paula Hyman. She was at Yale at the time uh, and Mary Kaplan. Um, They gave me a long list of books to read. So for the next two years or so, while I was still teaching full time, I devoured everything that was published on the topic. um, And I thought about going to graduate school. Um, So Marion Kaplan also invited me to her home in Manhattan, and she played a a very formative role, although I've never told her this, (laughs) um, in helping me um, figure out what I want to do with this research and in publishing it. Um, So, yeah, um, I met with Marion Kaplan and talked with her about different ideas. Meanwhile, while I loved teaching um, and I loved working with middle schoolers and high schoolers. I taught high school at night. Um, I just became obsessed, as I said. So I applied to a range of um, graduate programs. And again, another person who was very uh, generous with their time and their expertise was Volker Berghahn. I had gotten into Columbia University and had planned to do my PhD there. And I met with him several times and he lent me many books and gave me things to read and was really amazing uh, and would have been a great advisor had I not decided to go to the University of Sussex in Brighton. Um, And the reason I chose to go there was because they had a center for German Jewish studies. and it's, it was just a very uh, enriching place for me. I was surrounded by people in all different disciplines who um, were all interested in the same topic. And it was also cheaper than going to school in New York. Um, <laughs> right, so, living-wise. And that's um, really what, uh, what sealed the deal. And I was also able to begin my dissertation research as soon as I got there, uh, which was an added uh, advantage. Um, so yeah, so how did I come to this particular topic? So I decided I was going to do German Jewish refugees, look at, look at the refugee experience. And one of uh, Marion Kaplan's books, it was called, um, Making of the Jewish Middle Class, Women, Family, and Identity in Imperial Germany. I had read that and, um, prior prior to going to graduate school. And that left a a very strong impression on me. And I hadn't really realized how much until I recently went back to the book and saw how much my own writing mirrors her, not not so much the writing, the the approach 
mirrors her approach, mm. which is looking at how home life and the social spheres and the workplace all shape how people identify themselves. And in this case, German Jewish identity, how they cultivate an identity in their day-to-day life. Um, so that book was formative for me. And then she- You know, I hadn't thought about that until you said it. And now that you've said it, I agree. I think that there, I definitely think there are parallels with the way that you use, that you incorporate, we'll talk about this, but gender and um, yeah, just the home space. Absolutely. And it was funny. I I thought I was being so original. (laughs) Well, still original. (laughs) And then then I looked at her book again recently, because it had been a while. And I just thought, okay, this really left an impression on me. Um, and then she wrote another book, um, also before I started my PhD, called uh, Between Dignity and Despair, Jewish Life in Nazi Germany. And using the same methods, she looked at Jewish life in Germany under the Nazis. And I remember thinking, and actually talking to her about this, um, that I was going to do, I I decided my research was going to be kind of a continuation of what she did. And that I would look at refugees, German Jewish refugees in exile, and look at how their lives in exile shaped their identity. So at the beginning, I thought that was what I was going to do. I was going to look at New York, maybe the U.S., German Jewish refugees in exile, um, and see and use those same kinds of methods of looking at home life, workplace, organizational life, and so on to look and see how German Jewish identity shifted. Um, But when I decided to go to the University of Sussex, of course, I met... Um, many, many, many um, former refugees who were still alive at that time, it was the early 2000s, who participated in the numerous events from the Center for German Jewish Studies. So while it was based in Brighton, England, uh, we had many uh, co-sponsored events in London. And through my work there, I was able to meet personally at least at least I'd say 50 former refugees. Um, They're just, they would attend all of our events and come and share their experiences. So what struck me about that, um, my first, in my first six months at the Center for German Jewish Studies in Brighton was the assumption was that the experience of refugees in London was going to be similar to those in New York. Like there just didn't seem to be any reason why it would be different. Uh, But the more I came to meet different refugees, the more I, had this uh, this unanswered question of why are these guys so British? They sounded British, they looked British, they had British names, um, and they're so different from my the world that my grandmother lived in. My grandfather passed away, and that my grandmother had lived in in Washington Heights. Like it was such a different the world that you grew up seeing yes. when you went down to visit them. That was so German. It was so German. And people were lovely in London. People were generous. They welcomed me into their homes. Um, I did a lot of oral history interviews while I was in Britain um, and did the same when I got a research fellowship in um, at the Leo Beck Institute in New York at the Center for Jewish History. So I met, I did part of my research was doing oral history interviews, but that was just part of it. So I ended up changing my dissertation from just the, the thesis, just looking at refugees, the shaping, reshaping of German Jewish identity and family life in exile in the U.S. to a comparative study 
which my advisor, Ted Timms, the late Ted Timms, uh, he was amazing. He did, he was a little apprehensive. He said this, you know, comparative studies are really tough, um, time consuming. Yeah, it's double the amount of work. But, you know, I was young and thought I could do it. So, so I did it. And I found as I uncovered um, the, the day-to-day experience of refugees in London and New York between this 10-year period, 1935 to 1945, that the experiences were so vastly different. Um, and there was a lot to explain. There were, there were a lot of questions I had and a, um, things to uncover about why refugees in London, thir- what is it, 50, 60 years later, seemed so British to me, while those in New York still seemed so German. And yeah, so that's where the the whole dissertation came from um, and why I chose to do a comparative uh, study. So you're challenging, you know, a number of commonly held assumptions, as you've already alluded to, about, um, you know, national mythologies and scholarly literature, and that it was easier for German Jews to integrate into American life than it was for their counterparts who were in London, as you've already said, seems sort of like those in London integrated more than those in, in New York. I wonder if you could expand on the questions that guided your research. So when you were going into the archives, you know, what were the main questions that you were asking yourself? Sure. So the main question was, why is there this seeming discrepancy in that refugees in London identified as, did not identify as British, sorry, but appeared British, while refugees in New York identified as American, but appeared German. So there was some something that happened during this period that led um, the refugees who ended up in New York to believe and feel American, yet retain their German language, dress, food, everything, while at the same time, refugees in London who did not identify as English for sure, and maybe British, um, while they hid their German identity in these 10 years, and they basically had to. It didn't have anything to do with national, um, their previous ideas about national identity and becoming American and so on. It had almost exclusively to do with their, um, the conditions upon their entry and also uh, mostly external factors. So one of the questions that drove me is what are the external conditions and factors in a so-called host country that shape refugee and immigrant experience and identity formation? So what are those out- external factors that can that can make or break an experience. So do you um, mean things like cultural um, norms or yeah, you think immigration that's what laws? I mean. or, uh. Actually, what I found was that the two communities in the late 30s, before the war broke out in September 1939, um, that the two communities looked very similar. And then once the war broke out, everything changed. So um, it was actually the war. So it was the domestic policies of Britain 
and the U.S. during the war, it was the visas, the immigration policies of Britain and the U.S. That that was uh, shockingly different and shaped, I think, directly shaped their experience. So, for example, in Britain, uh, while they accepted approximately 80,000 German-speaking Jews into Britain, they gave exclusively transit visas. So these were temporary visas that were stamped into their passport or on a separate piece of paper that said, you are allowed to stay here, but you must leave eventually. Got it. Like, there was it's a stopping person. point on the exactly. way to a final destination. And most people that arrived, the majority were unable to work. So there were employment restrictions on their visa in their passport. So that, if nothing else, would affect how you see yourself in a new place. Um, And in the U.S., the people that got visas there, they received immigration visas. Now, they didn't get citizenship right away, but they were on the path to citizenship, and they were able to work almost in any capacity, at least before the U.S. entered the war. So if you look at, I mean, I'm not saying one policy was necessarily better than the other. The Brits, the UK government let in more refugees uh, in relation to their size um, uh, and their population than the US did. Uh, the US let in approximately two, over 200,000 refugees, which obviously is more than 80,000, but in relation to its size and population, uh, it was smaller. Um, so the UK policy just the the stamp and the visas shaped the difference in their experiences. Also, the kinds of visas that they gave, uh, they gave um, 10,000 kinder transport visas, which were also, which was a wonderful thing in that it rescued children. Um, But those were also transit temporary visas. And 20,000 domestic service visas, which allowed 20,000 German Jews, German-speaking Jews, mostly German, to make their way to the UK to work in domestic service, mostly women. So they they were those they were allowed to be employed in domestic service, but all of the um, most of the rest of the refugees in London and in the UK were not allowed to work. And then we have. Uh, the war, which started in 39 for the UK, and they were, London was uh, subsequently bombed. Um, And in the US, the war didn't officially start for Americans until December 1941. So you have this crisis period when the the, um, government in Britain starts evacuating women and children from London. The plans were already in place a month before the war began. Um, And once war was declared, evacuation started. So you started to see any sense of sort of family life. Normalcy. Yeah. Upended first with the evacuations. Um, Second, with kinder transport, the children were were separated. It was child separation. They were separated from their families. So they were... Some were in London and some were in hostels and some were in boarding schools and others were dispersed in families across Britain. So there was already from the very start, it was difficult. It was difficult to maintain family and social networks that would support refugees in New York. Um, so, but they saved 10,000 children, whereas the U.S. had a kinder transport plan for 20,000 children, but it, it 
failed on the floor of Congress. So, you know, you, there's, I, I don't want to compare and say good or bad. It's just different. And um, so the way the visa system worked in the U.S., it there were more uh families that came, that arrived together, whole families, whereas in Britain, it was often um, people separated and isolated from their families, not always, but often. So you have these different circumstances. And then in Britain, you have between 1940, May 1940 to the end of 41, you have this fear of a German in um, the fifth column spies and 20,000 German Jewish refugees were interned in camps um, on the Isle of Man um, and some sent to Canada, some sent to Australia, some died in a boat accident. Um, So 20,000 refugees were interned alongside German Christian uh, immigrants. (laughs) So um, you have complete disruption. And there's an amazing account of this one day, I think it was in July of 1940 in Hempstead in the Northwest London neighborhood where many of the refugees settled. And there's this day, uh, I have it written down, but I can't remember it off the top of my head, where the police, the British police go to Hempstead to the library where they know many refugees are because they can't work. So they're spending their hours in the library and arrest anyone that looked foreign. Um, And this was the day. Whatever that that means. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It was the roundup of German Jewish refugees. And um, it was primarily men that were taken at first, although there were women that were interned. So you had people parting and separating from their families, often men who had been interned after Kristallnacht or had experienced trauma and separation in Germany. So this was, um, the, the accounts of that day are, are jarring. And meanwhile, in New York, things weren't, you know, okie dokie, 100% perfect by any means, and people were suffering from depression and, and isolation and poverty and all of these things, but at least they weren't being in, you know, interned in camps. Right. So they could build a routine. They knew where they were going to, you know, wake up every morning. Exactly. And they also were able to work. So while in London, refugees weren't able to establish long-term businesses during this period. There were some cafes, some restaurants um, that catered to German Jewish refugees. Um, for the most part, they were not allowed to work, whereas in in the U.S. they were. And in Washington Heights, um, there was a, a rich um, community of commerce, of people opening stores and, you know, selling things uh advertising in the newspaper, selling things and services. Um, and you see in the two cities that between 35 and 45, that the refugees in London tended to, there was pressure for them to hide their Germanness, not their Jewishness necessarily. It, it, there was very little um, firsthand accounts of anti-Semitism in the accounts that I read of refugees. That does not mean it didn't exist. Of course, it existed. It was um, 
maybe just not as palpable as the anti-German. Right. The, the anti-German stuff was what kept people <laughs> up at night. Um, and there's crazy stories. The, the government would be, the British government, during the Blitz, uh, they would be dropping pamphlets that say what to do when the enemy comes. And you can imagine that people who had escaped Germany and now are hoping to be you know, free in London are seeing that the Germans could come any day and they were bombing. So it's a very different experience than those in New York who were able to find work, some kind of work, even though it was hardly ever what they had been used to in Germany. Um, they were able to develop organizations and uh, communities where they could um, sort of build a, a foundation for themselves um, and help each other, you know, those who were falling through the cracks. So the, the two cities' experiences were very different, and I would say it was more that than their impressions of America as a land of opportunity and Britain as not, you know. But the, the funny thing that I found was when I looked at the, um, the various um, descriptions of arrival in Britain, not in London so much, but but those that passed the White Cliffs of Dover, there were these um, so many references to freedom, to the history of Britain as a land of asylum and freedom and the White Cliffs of Dover. And so it was just interesting because I had assumed that it would just be those that saw the Statue of Liberty that were Ellis Island, right? Yeah, that had this sort of romantic view. But there was also a lot of that language with Britain. Um, and there were other reasons, um, differences in the impressions upon arrival, um, partially, I think, because of the distance from Germany. So if you came on a ship, it took anywhere from five days to three weeks to get there. So there's that like psychological difference of being so far away. Um, and also, uh, the, I think the sight of New York coming in from the harbor, uh, and most of them landed in Hoboken, um, was was striking. This, they, many of them wrote about the skyscrapers. Whereas those that arrived in Britain landed at a place like Dover, for example, and then took a train and ended up at King's Cross or, you know, just another European. I loved your description of, of the weather, yeah. of how the weather affected people and you exactly. know, the, just the rain of England. Yes. And there were many people who wrote about that upon their arrival. Well, they wrote about it late in looking back. So I don't know to what degree they were thinking about that in the moment, but in their memoirs, they comment on the weather, which is a very British thing to do. <laughs> right. It's just so much more mundane than the image of New York City. Yes, yes. I mean, um, not everybody was thrilled to be in New York. That was the other thing that I found is that these ideas of, you know, America being land of the free and exciting, many people found it crass. Um, and described it as being too loud and too much. And so there, you know, there, those stereotypes about America, you know, with, with having open arms and people being allowed to be American and so on, it, the, there's, there's not much truth in that. It was more, much more, um, there's much more to be asked and uncovered about this, these assumptions about nations as, as places of refuge. So how did you go about seeking to answer these questions of how the two different contexts um, shaped experiences and identity. Did you, how, you know, what sorts of archival material did you go through? Did you use testimonies? What was the process? Yeah. So I started, um, I, my first few months there, um, 
after I figured out what I was going to do, after I figured out that I wanted to do a comparison, I just started doing interviews, as many as I could. But what I found, which was lucky, uh, was that there were growing archives in Britain um, of collection, individual family collections. And many of the people that I was interviewing were proudly preserving their family papers and documents and donating them to different um, libraries and co collections. So some of them were giving it to the Center for German Jewish Studies. So that even back then, which was, you know, a while ago, they had a, a decent number of um, family collections that I could use. And then I could read the do family documents from the period, you know, the contemporary documents, whether it was letters they received or diaries that they kept. Um, and then I was ab able to look at their many, many unpublished memoirs. There were so many former refugees that wrote memoirs, both in Britain and the U.S. and I'm sure around the world, uh, that they wrote to just tell their story and were never published, but they were saved in these family documents. So I was able to uncover many um, memoirs. So I used memoirs, oral history interviews, letters, diaries. I used the um, refugee press, so the, the newspapers in Britain, in London, um, that were created by refugees, and the newspapers in New York that were created by refugees. Uh, I looked at the organizational documents in both places. Um, and so these are the sorts of things that, uh, that enriched me, my understanding and also helped me uncover patterns. So for example, with language, I saw that the organizations in London, for the most part, used English for their titles, for everything, in their meetings, for their minutes, for the names of their activities. They Everything was in English, whereas those in Washington Heights were primarily German. And the Aufbau newspaper went, lasted for, you know, until very recently and published in German all that time. Um, and so that, that was just one example. But the... Also, I looked at the use of um, how people identified themselves in their own memoirs, what they called themselves, whether it was, you know, they use the word refugee or they use the word immigrant or emigre. Or, and I found patterns in these. Um, I think I looked at over 50 mem unpublished memoirs um, and they they were very telling. And also in the, the newspaper articles, the refugee press articles were also very telling. And one of the things that I thought was really cool, um, devastatingly horrific, was but interesting, was uh, I went to the Imperial War Museum and looked at their detailed maps of what was bombed when and where in London. And I had there's a, a sort of mini version of this in my book where there's one page from the original A to Z, which is the A to Z. It's like a map collection of maps from 1938. Um, people use them until very recently. And there was a page for the neighbor, two pages for the neighborhoods where the German Jews settled in London. And I plotted out on one map all of the places that were mentioned in memoirs, letters, organizational documents, newspapers. So basically, you know, cafes, restaurants, synagogues, different places people lived, hostels, um, hotels. That must have taken a while. A very long time. <laughs> I've, I've tried to do something like that and it's, it, it takes, takes a long, long time, time. But I love maps. So it was actually really okay. enriching for me and I loved being, I was able to go there so I could like go right, to be physically there. So I plotted out all of these places in London and the map in my book, it's, there's not as many places. I did, couldn't include all of the, 
the, the hot spots, but I, I tried to include the best of. Um, and then I went to the Imperial War Museum and poured through their different maps. And I created on that as a uh, companion to that first map, a map of all the places and buildings that were bombed, either destroyed or bombed where they were partially uh, damaged to the point where we couldn't live, with, live in them. And the overlap of these two places was fascinating. So it, besides the descriptions of enduring the bombings, the blitz, and having to be in the underground, um, uh, forgot what they're called, bomb shelters, that they, the refugees in London were literally seeing their community being destroyed. I mean, one building at a time. It wasn't all in one night, but I can only imagine the terror. Um, and so in New York, on the other hand, I also have a map that lays out all the hot spots for refugees <laughs> during that time. And they had other issues that they had to deal with, but certainly not, um, you know, bombing or fear of internment. So yeah, that, I don't know if I answered the original question, but um, I, I was able to use, um, I was fortunate to get a fellowship at the um, the Exile Archive in Frankfurt, which is at the National German Library. And I spent six weeks there doing research. They have a lot of material um, from refugees uh, whose families sent boxes, literally boxes of their personal papers to this uh, Exile Archive uh, in Frankfurt. And then... Um, like I said, I was at the Leo Beck Institute uh, through a fellowship from the Leo Beck and Dea Day, the German organization. Um, and I spent time at the University of Southampton and the Wiener Library in London and the Imperial War Museum and the Center for German Jewish Studies and really tried to get my hands on as, as much as I could to, to find patterns. So, yeah, I, th I thought it was... Um, it was a, a very exciting time for me to be able to get my hands on all these documents. Um, I find it interesting that there would be so many collections of the personal papers of German Jewish exiles back in Germany at these institutes. I know it's, it's actually, it's intriguing. It's, it's really interesting. Well, a lot of yeah. the ones in the exile archive are prominent people, people who were, you know, the people that I generally don't study, um, you know, the, the thousand out of 250,000 that, that fled Germany, you know, the ones who were in academia or artists and so on. And many of those um, collections were coveted by the German library who then purchased them or asked for them. But the, the luck, luckily, when I got the, the grant to go there, luckily I was able to find papers of the non-famous <laughs> that happened to end up there. And that's what I looked for, which was quite interesting because the archivist would always ask, don't you want to see, you know, I don't know who it was, Kurt Weil or something, like somebody famous, you know, right. their collections. Right. And I was like, no, I'd like to just see that woman's papers, you know? <laughs> you know, and so I ended up really right. like getting my hand, literally, literally getting my hands dirty, looking at these pap these private papers of families whose who's, um, elderly, you know, aunts and so on collected everything and saved everything. And then they would ship them en masse to to this collection. So yeah, it was fascinating. It's, I still, I mean, I still love, now everything's digitized. So um, not everything, but right. a lot. But there's something about the experience of being sure. there 
and being in the archive. Um, before we get deeper into the main arguments in the book, um, I wonder if some of our listeners might need some background information just about the history of of German Jews sort of in the lead up to this period. Sure. Um, there, There is a lot published on this topic. Um, so yes, there's been so much um, written, especially in the last 20 years, um, about Jewish life in Germany. Um, and basically, if I could do a quick overview for the average person who doesn't know about, who just assumes that I don't know that everyone's experience was similar to Eastern European Jews. That right. I think a lot of people have an image of the Yiddish-speaking exactly. refugee arriving, and this yeah, is different. And, and there were East European Jews, or as they call them, Ostjuden, in Germany. Um, and there were there was sort of a people document or describe a sort of prejudice by the German Jews toward the East Germans, um, but but there were also support systems in place to help impoverished Eastern European Jews that were put in place by German Jews. So it wasn't entirely, you know, a hatred or anything like that. There just, there was a sense of being German and being German Jewish that Marion Kaplan writes about in her book um, and that others have studied further. Jews were uh, emancipated at the time of the unification of Germany around that time in 1871. So when Germany became a nation, it granted equal rights to Jewish men who were now citizens, which was advanced. And at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, there were um, celebrations and commemorations by Jewish organizations saying, this is going to be the century of Jews in Germany. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, it was a place where Jews could, uh, Jewish men could engage in education and, um, and in business and raised families that embodied this German building, or as um, now is becoming uncovered, it's more of a German-Jewish identity that embraced much of the, the German culture. Uh, and that lasted th up until the Nazis. Um, we had World War One, where almost 100,000, I believe, uh, Jews were in, in, in the army for Germany, um, including my great-grandfather, and um, I think something around 10 or 12,000 were killed in war, um, and they be they both believed, they felt that they belonged to, that they were German. They were Germans of Jewish descent, is what they called themselves. So um, it doesn't mean that they disappeared into, you know, this whole assimilation idea that they disappeared into German society. They didn't. There, there were very strong organizational ties and religious ties, you know, um, congregations and so on in different organizations, Jewish organizations, but there was intermarriage and some mixing. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, German Jews spoke German and, um, and were German identified as German. They saw themselves as German until Hitler told them otherwise. So let's get into their the refugees' early experiences in both London and New York. We've talked about, um, you've talked a little bit about already what they, you know, first saw and what they expected when they arrived in these places and the differences between expectation and reality. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about, you know, where these refugees um, 
lived and worked. And, you know, you hinted that perhaps they're, I mean, in London, they didn't work at all, but in, in New York, their lives, you know, weren't the same as they were in Germany. They weren't necessarily in the same fields. How did they sort of begin to get things in order in these two places? So it's very hard to generalize about the experience of refugees in one city versus another. However, there are patterns uh, for sure. So um, the majority of, of refugees in who arrived in London um, were – actually, can I start that again? <laughs> I knew I would do it once. No. <laughs> That's okay. Um, okay. So um, it's hard to generalize about where and why people ended up in certain places in London and New York. But what I did find in both cities was that wherever people landed first, whether it was in a, a bed sit, like a small room in a house in uh, east, the east end of London, or a little apartment on the Lower East Side in New York, that very quickly they found their way to live in neighborhoods that reminded them of their neighborhoods in Germany. So there's a book called Frankfurt on the Hudson that was published in the 80s. Um, by Stephen Lowenstein. It's it's a fascinating book about Washington Heights and the German-Jewish community there into the 80s. Um, and they would live in other places, but always looking to find um, a, a, a situation, a room available in um, in New York. It was in Washington Heights or the Upper West Side. And a, other there were some other small clusters of uh, refugee communities in Queens and so on in the Bronx. But the but the largest um, concentration of refugees was in um, Upper Manhattan on the west side. And in London, the people were drawn to northwest London, which is really beautiful and genteel. It still is, looks the same um, around Hampstead and Swiss Cottage, um, Belsize Square. And they would live in tiny little bedsits or apartments or flats, um, you know, crowded with lots of people. But they were, they wanted to live in a, in a neighborhood that reminded them of home and be around other refugees. So, uh, yes, yeah, so the two neighborhoods were comparable, I would argue. Uh, Washington Heights at the time, which was filled with these glorious 1920s, early 1920s um, apartment buildings and sort of Art Deco buildings as well, that uh, were primarily empty after the stock market crash. So there was cheap housing that was really stunning apartment buildings. Even today, they're they're really gorgeous. The lobbies are stunning. Um, and in New York, in Washington Heights and Upper West Side, um, and those in, in London um, tended to live around Belsize Square um, and, the, and Hempstead. Uh, one of the major differences, besides all of the up... Um, all of the interruptions in daily life in London with, you know, evacuations and internment and bombing uh, right. were besides those Mi minimal upsets. Yeah. <laughs> um, besides that there were in, in New York, there was a housing shortage during the war. Once the war came to the U S basically. Right. Um, and so people weren't able to move. Whereas in London, people were moving a lot. There was a lot of um, sort of, Upheaval. Whether they wanted to or not. Whether yeah. they wanted to or not, exactly. And in New York, there was, besides the 
10,000 or so refugees who joined the armed services after the U.S. joined the war, um, there was very little upheaval. Um, and likewise, in in London, there were approximately as many uh, refugee men who enrolled in what was the Pioneer Corps, um, which was the only um, military branch they were allowed to join when they were freed from internment. So they were interned by the British, but yet joined the British army in order to fight the enemy, which was Germany. Um, and then many refugees got their path to citizenship. Many male refugees got their path to citizenship through their armed, uh, their, their service um, in the army. Oh, and that which was I imagine was in many ways an attempt to like really prove their Yes. Potential to be British? Is that, um, that definitely yeah. happened. Um, but it also was a chance for them to help the country that saved them. That's often the language that was used was not that we're fighting for Britain, but we're fighting to help those who helped us to destroy a common enemy. Whereas in New York, the refugees that joined the army that wrote letters back to their families, they they picked up a lot of American slang. I write a little bit about the swearing and so on. And they might adopt an American name while they're in the armed services, a first name, but they came back and uh, went back into full German Jewish life, which was um, really interesting to me, this sort of um, a, sort of a nostalgia for their time in the army. Um, likewise, for those in Britain as well, there was a nostalgia so, yeah, and the kinds of work that refugees in New York found um, ranged from working on the docks to um, working as um, secretaries, eventually receptionists, once their English got better. Um, many women, most women worked, were able to find some kind of piecemeal piecework, um, doing lots of different things. And the Aufbau newspaper was actually a fascinating uh, resource. The classified ads uh, were fascinating. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Small businesses and... It's just really so telling. I mean, you, you could write a whole book just on the newspaper. Um, and so those were great resources. And the advertisements were wonderful uh, for showing me where the jobs were, where the housing was. Um, I actually plotted out a chart in my book that shows the number of advertisements for different neighborhoods, apartments in different neighborhoods in New York over time. And so you can see the sort of, you know, that most people lived in Washington Heights or the Upper West Side um, and that the housing shortage led to um, less movement as the war progressed. So there wasn't an equivalent of that in London. A lot of the housing was found at their, um, they had uh, an organization uh, called Woburn House or Bloomsbury House. They, they moved and it was um, funded by the Anglo-Jewish community that served, it served as a, a sort of central meeting place where they could get, um, they would, German Jews would spend their days waiting in line there to get money to live on. They would get little stipends to live on, and they would also find housing there, um, but it wasn't published, so it wasn't as easy easy for me to scour the, the ads for where people were living because they were literally on bulletin boards at Wilburn House. Right, right. Not preserved. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about how German Jewish refugee identity, you know, was expressed in these, in these two places. You described that 
dress and fashion were an important realm for, you know, identity expression. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So there are differences in, in even today, but in the, more so than in the 30s and 40s in the way Londoners dressed and the way New Yorkers dressed, whatever that means, typical American. And the parents in New York were often informed by their children who went to the public schools of what to wear and what not to wear. So um, there, that was often the determining factor in deciding and sort of picking out clothing, um, the, what the children wore. Whereas in Britain, um, the children that remained in London through this period or who came back to London, they went to school where there were school uniforms. I mean, all, it's still that way in Britain today, um, that public school, meaning state schools, have uniforms. Um, so there was a, a sort of different pressure on children in Britain to uh, look British. Uh, it was less pressure because they just wore their uniform, whereas in New York, teenagers and children wanted to fit in, wanted to look American. Um, and so they were the ones teaching their parents about how to, you know, not, you know, begging them not to wear a tie when they went out to get the milk kind of thing. Um, but there's also a lot of discussion in, in refugee memoirs and uh, documents in both cities that said that there was a German look. Um, and I, it's hard for me to get my, you know, put my finger on it, but I, believe it was um, sort of a, uh, for the men, they would have a certain kind of hat, cap, um, and a certain kind of jacket that was heavier and thicker than the ones they were wearing in London or New York. Um, and for women, most people didn't have money to buy new clothes. You know, the clothes weren't as cheap and easy to come by as they are today. Uh, and so they brought their clothes with them to the degree that they could in both London and New York and wore what they had. Uh, those in domestic service wore uniforms in domestic service. Children wore school uniforms when they were in school. Um, but the men tended to wear what they brought with them and the women as well, if they weren't working. Um, and in New York, it was the same. So there was, it was often like in most immigrant, immigrant populations, it was children teaching their parents, you know, how to fit in. Um, and so it, but what I did find is that there was, because of the war and the threat of German invasion and the bombing and the internment and so on, that if you looked German in London, that was to your disadvantage. So um, many of the kids that came ended up looking British anyway, because of whether they were living with families or in a, at a, in a hostel or at a school. And those living in London uh, didn't want to seem German or sound, even sound German. Um, so there was an effort to sort of blend in more um, that they describe in their in their memoirs and in their letters. Um, and then in changing their names, the, the number of name changes was drastically uh, different in Britain than in New York. There were, and, there, and I write a whole chapter on the use of names and titles and how in New York it was much more um, acceptable to have a, a German and or Jewish sounding name um, because of a long tradition of uh, German Jewish um, entrepreneurs like Levi Strauss, for example, uh, that that it sort of gave um, it was these these German names were sort of connoted high quality, you know, um, 
And it, whereas in London, you know, during the war, you don't want a German name. <laughs> so, uh, and in the army, in the um, British army, they were required to change their name uh, because in case they were captured by the Germans. So the soldiers that changed their name officially through the army then came back and kept their British name, whereas those in the American army were allowed to keep their their German Jewish sounding names. So it was also, um, that was also a difference between the two uh, that I thought was interesting. There were definitely strong, a strong German Jewish presence in, in Britain bef- well before the war. There were waves of um, German Jewish immigrants in Britain that had long been established, like even, you know, Karl Marx finding refuge in, in London and Friedrich Engels having, you know, that's obviously like the most famous, but, you know, it wasn't unheard of to have a German last name. Uh, but right. during World War II, it became a liability. Right. And you also write about how the home was another place in which cultural identities were sort of formed and maintained and altered. Um, and when we talk about the home, we're also we're often talking about how women played a role in you know curating new family and cultural traditions or maintaining old ones. Um, I wonder if you could expand on that. Yeah. So in both places, um, there was uh, an effort to create. You know, I think it's just common for refugees and immigrants of all types to want something familiar. So there were, especially before the war began, in, in um, for the, for Britain, there were um, attempts to to have. So I scoured all of my materials uh, that I anything I came across or interviews that I did. I asking about food. I was just particularly fascinated by the use of food as something of you know for comfort and also to uh, create a sense of you know the the memory and the, the sense of home um, and. A, along with the other issues we've talked about with dress and so on and names and language, uh, refugees in London had more difficulties accessing German type foods once the war began. Um, whereas in New York, there was an established German community already there, uh, mostly on the Upper East Side or Midtown. Uh, I think it was the 50s on the East Side. Um, so there were, and there was also a strong Eastern European Jewish community um, with, um, you know, with del- delicatessen type deli foods and so on. So there was, there were resources there that they could access, especially before they entered the war, the U.S. entered the war, that in New York families could, sort of recreate some of these home, um, you know, these meals and, and traditions like, you know, coffee and cake and so on. Um, and they were able to open their own bakeries and restaurants in New York. Um, and in London that did happen, especially after the war, there were some famous restaurants, um, and shops that were, uh, that sold German Jewish goods, um, but that you know that was after the war. During the war and during the late 30s, it was a little bit harder to do that before the war broke out, and then much harder once it did break out. So, the foods that people brought, you know, that they created and brought into their homes, were very telling and revealing of of the the way that they could sort of recapture some of their their sense of home, and 
I found in the Alphabet that there would be, you know, sections for women on, on, you know, how to cook, you know, Thanksgiving dinner, you know, so there'd be like suggestions, this is timely, um, on how to cook a turkey, uh, but also, um, you know, also where to get the best ingredients for your, I don't know, Apfelkuchen, apple cake or something, you know, so the, it was a sort of a, a fluidity between these different um cultures that it, it kind of created their own culture of an, a Jewish German Jewish American taste um, whereas in London many of the women who especially the 20,000 or maybe few fewer women um, worked in domestic service they were being trained to cook British food and the food they were given uh, was servants' food, which was you know not German Jewish food. So um, there was there were those limitations, and and also eventually with rationing, there were much more severe uh, restrictions on what people could access and could get hold of. Um, and in New York, there were also rations eventually, but um, they weren't as severe, and they weren't until later in the war. So yeah, so food was very telling. The way people described food and um, even just eating ice cream, for example, in New York, someone writes about they were shocked that people would eat ice cream out of a cone walking down the street. Like it just seemed so crass and so rude. Um, but, you know, that's just, you know, that's an, just an observation that someone made that I thought was intriguing. Um, yeah, so there were, you know, the, in the times people ate, there were some things in London that that looked more similar to Germany than New York did. So, for example, um, tea, tea time, right? Like having tea and sitting down and and enjoying um, your meal. That's more of the cafe and cooking. Right, type. exactly. Right. It's much more adaptable. And the dress as well. When we talked about dress earlier, the the shift from German to British dress wasn't as extreme as the shift from German to American styles. There just seemed to be a a bigger gulf between, or an ocean, between Britain and uh, the U.S. in terms of fashion and clothing. And I, I don't mean like high fashion, but like just everyday clothing. Yeah. So, yeah, there definitely was overlap, but but a lot of um, differences. And whether that was children wearing uniforms in school or wear, men wearing a hat at all times, whereas in New York, even at that time, there were, you know, the people still wore hats, but not quite as um, not in quite as many situations as they would have in London. Um, there's just, yeah, there was, so it seemed a little bit easier to adapt in Britain in terms of dress um, than it did in New York at first. Um, but in terms of the food, definitely it was much harder to access German style food once the war began. It's so interesting because it seems like because of the, as you described, vast gulf, between, um, you know, elements of German culture and elements of everyday American culture, it was easier to preserve things. Whereas because of the subtleties or the subtler differences in some elements of German and British culture, it actually resulted in, instead of it being easier to keep certain cultural elements because, oh, they're not, they're not too different. It actually sort of ended up washing them away. Yeah. And I, part of that, I think, has to do with the fear of being identified as German. So even shopping for, you know, Wurst or something in a store would like 
you know, reveal who you were. Um, and there were stories about in the memoirs about people being turned on by their neighbors who called the police because they heard a German accent or, you know, so that in, in New York, I mean, New York's was diverse then and it's diverse now. It was not uncommon to hear different languages being spoken. Um, and being German was just another one. Um, so yeah, th there's that as well as the sort of um, differences in the in the cultures between Britain and the U.S. There's just these, um, yeah. I mean, there is definitely that sense in New York that you could be American and yet still have an accent or speak a foreign language at the time, which is you know questioned now in 2019, but. Um, in London, uh, there you couldn't identify as English. And even now people talk about this. Like one of the things about this work that I loved was that it's so relevant today. And um, the, the understandings about um, immigration and policies and ways to uh, welcome or not welcome refugees um, and ways to allow them to set up their own organizational and family networks uh, is directly, we have this case study of a population that was split or, you know, divided around the world, those that escaped, landing in these different places. And you can see what contextual factors uh, affected their cultural identity, their integration, their safety, and t even today, we have a lot of the same language that was that's that's relevant, whether it's internment or detention or child separation or kinder transport. So there's there's so much today, and whether there's paths to citizenship, we say in the U.S. Um, in in Britain today, you have people who are descendants of refugees applying for of German Jewish refugees applying for German citizenship so they can stay in the EU. Like there's, it's so, um, it's irrelevant to me, at least. Um, I see so much of what I studied uh, before my eyes now and in, in, a, in a not so um, heartening way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more about the parallels. And I think just the, you know, the everyday sort of cultural experiences of immigrants or refugees, you know, building their hybrid American lives or the, you know, X hyphen American um, lives. And then the constantly overarching context of policy and laws and what's happening in the world at the same time. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, Lori, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, but this has been a really fascinating discussion. Um, and before I let you go, I am hoping to ask you about what you're working on next. Sure. I've really enjoyed talking with you, Robin. Um, you ask great questions. So what I'm working on right now, I'm working on two things. I've always got my head in two places. So I'm, I'm thinking about German Jews and refugees and immigration always at one time on the one hand. And so I'm writing about um, the ways that second and third generation refugees, German Jewish refugees, are reckoning with their past based on what's happening today. So, and you're one of, I suppose you're one. I am of one of them. People. Yes, um, I'm right. not looking at <laughs> at academics so much, um, although I guess I could, but more at, um, I guess, famous people who've been um, tweeting and whatnot, using social media to um, express their um, solidarity with refugees and um, 
around, you know, based around their own grandparents' experience or their parents' experience. So that's, um, and also film and, and all their cultural novels and representations of their sort of a reckoning really with their, their grandparents or parents' um, experience as refugees in the world today. So that's on one hand, I'm doing, working on that. And I'm always thinking as a teacher, I'll always be a teacher and I still teach, but um, working with social studies uh, teachers, pre-service teachers and um, current in-service teachers, I am writing a book about uh, history education, uh, basically the state of history education today and where I think it needs to go. (laughs) So I'm thinking my head's in two places at all times. Uh, And then also, of course, with my family. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Those little things. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Always, always that third job. <laughs> well, those sound like two really fascinating projects. I'm really looking forward to the, um, the sort of second and third generation German Jewish refugee ref- reckoning book. I, uh, yeah, I hope to read that soon. <laughs> yeah. There's, it's a, it's, a, it's a growing field. <laughs> I have to say there's a lot of people talking about it now. So well, thank you very much. Well, Lori, thanks again. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been just wonderful discussing your work with you. Of course. Thank you.